In this episode of 9-2-I Talks, Emmy-winning stand-up comedian Josh Gondelman discusses his new book, Nice Try, Stories of Best Intentions and Mixed Results, a hilarious laundry list of attempts to do the right thing, with fellow comic Aparna Nancherla. The conversation was recorded on September 15, 2019, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Hello. Hi. Hi. Um, I realize these are unbranded, I so I gotta put this, I know. I'm gonna put mine down like you did. Because <laughs> I don't wanna be showing brand loyalty. Yeah. Josh, thank you for asking me here to moderate your book talk. Thank you so much for moderating this. I think this will be really fun. Yeah, I, I was trying to remember when we first met, because Josh and I have known each other for a while, I think yeah. in the world of comedy, but I couldn't place our initial. I have a guess. Yeah. Which is, um, which is in Boston at a comedy club that doesn't exist anymore, as mm. most of them don't, yes. uh, over time. And uh, at Motley's, at a show that, yeah, okay, yeah. Oh, on a show that, a Mike, that Mike Kaplan was headlining. Oh, is my yes, best yes, guess. I do think we met through a mutual friend, Mike Kaplan. But yeah, mm-hmm. Josh and I have known each other for a number of years. Yeah. Um, and I'm happy to get to talk about his new book with him. Thank you so much for reading it. Oh I, my God. I mean, like, truly. The nicest that's, author. <laughs> I mean, like, but you're, you're a friend. It's like, you don't have the obligation. Like, when we had brunch, and I gave you a copy, and I gave yeah. my friend, our friend Zach Sherwin a copy, yes. and Zach emailed me afterwards, and he was like, I really loved your book. And, or no, we were talking on the phone. He goes, I yeah. really loved your book, but also like when you handed it to me, I had a moment of that reaction anytime a friend hands of you course. a book, which is like, okay. Yeah, <laughs> it's like homework. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah, homework too, but it's like a prerequisite for friendship. Yeah, 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 yeah. Here's the conditions yeah. of this relationship, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, I'm gonna ask very specific, I'm asking you <laughs> questions to make sure you read it. <laughs> Well, I wanted to start out pretty basic with, um, I know you've written a book before, co-written a book. Mm-hmm. Uh, you blew it with Joe Berkowitz, but this was your first solo venture. What, like, have you always wanted to write a book on your own? What kind of led you to the Yeah, project? I did. I did. I liked the idea. I think when I, when I left college, I thought I was going to be primarily like an author of funny books. Huh. Uh, like, yep. Um, <laughs> And I'd, I thought it was going to be like short fiction. That's yeah. like what my college thesis was. It was like funny short fiction. And then I didn't uh, for a number of years. Mm-hmm. And so it's always, but it's always been like an ambition of like, oh, I'd love to do this because I, I love books. Yeah. Which is so <laughs> facile. So like, I love books and I love sandwich. <laughs> like, um, but I, I love reading essay collections too, so it felt like a natural yeah. form for this to take. And after the book that Joe and I did together, it was kind of like, it, we were pitching an angle on an idea that the, the imprint that we worked on that one with had. Mm-hmm. And so it was, we, it was our idea, but it was kind of like filling a need that they had expressed to us. Yes. So I wanted to, next time I did any kind of like book length project, wanted to make sure it was something that was like, I, it was my idea. I felt like total ownership of it. Yeah. And I wanted to sit with it knowing how long it takes, right? From like the time you pitch it to the time it comes out to the promo cycle is like two plus years. Wow, so yeah. I, I waited for a couple of years before I pitched uh, uh, my own book because I wanted to make sure I like kind of twiddled the knobs and make sure everything was was dialed in for like something I really wanted to, to work on. Yeah, and what led you to the idea of, of nice try, like best, 
you know, best mm -hmm. intentions or like trying to do the right thing but not always succeeding? It, um, it became clear as I was outlining the book that that's what my life has been about. <laughs> so <laughs> just, yeah. Uh, yeah, kind of like uh, enthusiastic failure. And, sure. and, then, and then recalibrating. So like we, I had kind of originally, I when I handed in the my first draft of my proposal mm -hmm. to my agent, it was, the title was uh, Pathological Sweetheart, oh. which, yeah, which is the, so I, nice. I, thank you, I was described that way in the New York Observer <laughs> um, <laughs> as a pathological sweetheart. And I thought that was like a really fun two-word phrase. Yes. But yes. We, we went back and forth thinking about um, how to to come up with a title that best summarized the material. Sure. So, like, I think the the content of it led right. Like, what mm -hmm. I wanted to write about was was the driving force, and then we were trying to figure out a way to like corral that with a title so that people would see the title and be like, oh, it's that kind of thing, or like yeah. it evokes a, a response that is um, like resonant with what's in the book. And the the one. The book title that I always say that I was like, oh, this is a great book, and the title is just like so magnetic and, and so evocative is Bad Feminist by Roxanne Gay. Oh, where I was yeah. like, I want to do that version, but just like uh, like a white doofus. <laughs> um, <laughs> like I, but I want it to be that evocative of like white doofus. Yeah. <laughs> That's like your new bio. He's the white, he's a white doofus, doofus yeah. equivalent of, of Roxanne, Roxanne Gay. Gay. Yeah. Yes. He's like he's like not smart. Uh, he doesn't have anything that insightful to say. I mean, I think there's stuff in there, but oh, it's yeah. certainly not like a philosophical treatise. Sure. Well, like, what was the process in terms of generating material and and just having? Because I know the pieces kind of vary in length. Like some are just list form, mm -hmm. and then others are almost like a little vignette, and then others are a little bit longer explorations of. I I like the idea of like working in different lengths and different yeah. kinds of medium uh, media media mediums. Medium. Yeah, thank you. I, don't, um, I, I think it was someone over here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like a, um, a grammatically correct audience. Sure, yeah. <laughs> That's what I prefer. That was actually a test for you, and if someone said it wrong, I we're going to throw you out. I think I just trailed off and didn't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that works, though. Yeah, yeah. I found it works well in yeah. social situations. Just let people yeah. hear what they want to hear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like an... Two faces or the vase. Yeah. Fill it in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're kind of the optical illusion of yes. literature yeah. up here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, old lady, young lady. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's just your joke, but different words. Sure. Different. Um, they, oh, so the, the things came out in different lengths just because I think there were a bunch of different stories I wanted to tell, and the stories didn't all like demand to be the same sure, length, yeah. right? Like some of them are slighter premises. Mm -hmm. Some of them are things that I just think are funny and like, oh, the, it, there's no greater uh, arc to this other than like this is one conversation I had with my dad or like yeah. a, this is a series of prank phone calls that my friends played when we were in middle school where they called this number. It was um, a guy, this guy named uh, Al Weaver, and he had the misfortune of his phone number corresponding with 1-800-GOOD-PORN. <laughs> that was like when you dialed that, and I don't, some kid I went to middle school with was like, get this, guess what happens if you dial 1-800-GOOD-PORN? And I guess the phone sex line, he's like, no, a guy in an office gets wicked mad. <laughs> and so my friends just did that for like a month. And so like, there's not, that's like my reluctance to be part of a prank and my proximity to pranks is like, 
it, it was actually, that essay was longer. It was like two different stories. And that, um, my, I'm like eye checking in with my, with my editor, Stephanie, <laughs> right? who was like, these are, we don't need both of these. And I was like, duly noted. <laughs> and, uh, uh, edited. And, um, yeah. and so it takes, you know, the, 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 the chapters took the shape that like served the, the greater work. And like, so they didn't drag on. And so yeah. they kind of get to the point and got out. Yeah, and you delve a lot into just, you know, yeah, past experiences, like you talk about summer camp, mm -hmm. and um, I think about be being like a designated driver mm -hmm. in your group of friends. Not do to brag. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you feel like you mainly came, like, mined through material on your own, or do you end up talking to friends and family? Did you burn any bridges? I, well, we'll see when it comes out, yeah. right? Oh, um, has anyone read it, though? And, yeah, a okay. few people have read okay. it. So. Um, that's a that's a really good question. I mostly did it on my own at first. Yeah. Like I kind of because I think if there was something I wanted to write about in a story for this book, it mm -hmm. was something that I remembered really well and felt important to me. Yeah. I guess I probably could have like asked, you know, asked my parents, asked my sister, asked like right. people who've been close to me my whole life if there were any things they remember that. No problem. Oh boy! Don't worry about it. You Someone's the landline two is ringing. You nicest people for your phone to ring in front of. We That's are okay. not going to shame you. No, not at all. These things happen. Anyway, this is a great reminder to everyone else that. Um, Please. No, 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 no. That's okay. No. If you um, if you want to turn your ringer up loud enough that you can hear it when it goes off, that's important. Because <laughs> otherwise, moment. it's just going to ring and you know. Uh, anyway. <laughs> I'm sorry. That was a seamless, yeah. So, that, that made me think that you did teach preschool. I did, fact. for sure, yeah. Ability Very to gentle, redirect. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, so I, I didn't, like, ask, are there any notable stories about me? Oh, right. But I did, like, I wrote drafts, and when it concerned people that were very close to me, I sent, I sent those... I sent those drafts to them for like fact check purposes. Like yeah. somewhat, tone, I mean like with my parents and my wife, uh, who I write about a lot, it was a lot of like tone check. Like does any, is there anything oh, here that yeah. you're like uncomfortable with? And then we can talk from there. Uh, and there were like a couple very, my mom had like a couple fact check things. One of them was like, well, you know, this th more things happened in between these two things in the story. And I was like, yeah, yeah but there's only so many pages. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, I can't just tell my whole life chronologically. Right, 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 right. Got to take out some. And, uh, and then my, there were a couple things that my wife was like, oh, my parents are going to read this. So, oh, no. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah. Uh, we, there were like a couple things that I was like, you know, just mindful of that I didn't, I didn't want to, I wanted to tell stories that were true but yeah. I didn't want to tell stories that were going to, like, hurt people in my... Like, it's not that kind of book. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't... I, there are still a couple of people, though, that I'm like, oh, I wonder what they'll think of this. Really? Yeah. There's, like, pe people like that, the like... the good porn guy. The good porn guy, yeah. 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 Oh, I would love for him to read it and reach out to me. <laughs> oh, that would be so great. <laughs> and just be like, guess who this is, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> How'd I get your number? I don't know. <laughs> That would be so funny. But there are like some people, you know, people like I have kind of, um, I edited it way down. There was like a couple, there were a couple paragraphs about my, the end of a relationship with someone I dated 
you know, six years ago or right. so. And it wasn't, it wasn't mean, but it was also like not super essential to the story that was being told. Right. And I was like, I don't need to like, I don't need to say something that like she would end up hearing about um, for the sake of just like, diving into this a little more. Like, it made sense to prune. And also it was... But, like, there's still a reference to, like, this breakup. And so I wonder, like, if someone, you know, someone that we both know will text her or if she'll read it. And, like... Oh, got it. It's nothing insulting. Yeah. But it is just, like, you know, I think when you're mentioning people, there's still that twinge of, like, oh, I remember it differently. Right. And, like, uh, Mike Birbiglia has that great... had that great old joke about the girlfriends of rappers... Where about like that ludicrous song "Move, Bitch, Get Out the Way"? Yeah, and like, and Ludacris's girlfriend going, "Well, sometimes Ludacris doesn't get out the way, but you don't hear that." And it's yeah. like that's how I feel yeah. about it. Where it's like you're only getting one right. side, and I want to, I want it to be fair, but it's also yeah. um, you're also it's my story. Yeah. Did you ever run into that problem with any specific essays of like weathering? Whether to undershare, overshare, like yeah, yeah. I've won. Well, I've won essay where um, it was about someone I, I used to date and her, and it was like a story where we explicitly broke the law because we were trying to buy and use drugs at a bowling alley. And <laughs> wait, it, that one's still that's, in there. that one's oh, in yeah, there. Oh yeah, yeah, that here. one's still in there. And so I I sent it to her because it was in the propo- It was like the first essay I wrote for this collection. It was mm-hmm. in the proposal, and I sent it to her. And she was like, yeah, that sounds like me. And, um, <laughs> and then when, and I legally, the lawyer from Harper Perennial was like, I know you've done this because you're a, a smart person, but like, did you change this woman's name already? Oh. And I said, I did. And then it was excerpted in Rolling Stone last week and she immediately tweeted it and was like, this is me. <laughs> you were like, on brand. Yeah, very on brand. <laughs> and very funny, it was like very, and, and she was like, she was like, if you have the lawyer call me, I would have said, I would have given him more details. <laughs> I was like, well, I left those out on purpose. Yeah. This like, is my book. Like, here are other names I go by as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Street names. Mm, I, um, I noticed, like, throughout the book, you kind of, you are able to cite sort of your own privilege mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, like, as a straight um, you know, able-bodied man who lives in a capitalist patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Sure, you, sure, sure. Uh, that's not, I mean, that, you, you guys laughed like that's the neighborhood I live in. <laughs> it's a very like, hip like, new neighborhood. Yeah, you live in capitalist patriarchy, Cap Brooklyn. Cap Pat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just got their first Starbucks. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry. We, I jumped in before oh, the question. Oh, no, no, no. I think I was just going to say, like, how much did you sort of bear that in mind as you were writing things? Like, how much did you want to be able to voice that for your audience? I thought about it a lot. And, mm-hmm. and not. In, I tried to do it in a way that wasn't, like, self-flagellating, but that yeah. was, like, self-aware. That was, yeah. like, this is... I understand the way people perceive me and uh, the benefits granted by, like, American society to me as kind of a default by the way I right. move through the world. And I think that that's like, I just wanted to show that I understood that. So when I'm telling right. a story that it doesn't sound like I'm speaking for like, this is how it is for everybody, right? Right, like, right, right. Like the experience of getting stopped by the police is like this, or you yeah. know, and, and people being like, well, not for everyone it isn't. Yeah. And I just wanted to make sure that like, I was telling a story from my point of view 
and demonstrating the awareness that that it's not a universal experience, uh, even if I'm like speaking broadly. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, do you feel like when you were writing the book, because you've worked a lot in TV writing, which is I think by virtue of its nature a more collaborative process, mm -hmm. do you feel like with book writing you tended to notice certain habits because you just are in your own head a lot more? I, I did when I went to read through the whole thing mm -hmm. together, because writing individual essays, sometimes like months apart, yeah. I wasn't always thinking, I was thinking about how it fit together, right. but I wasn't thinking about like linguistic crutches I was using or like metaphors. There was one, I think by the time I got to like first pass pages, which is like a draft and then another draft, and, oh, and you know, it. it's like close to complete. And by the time I saw those, there were like, three things that I described as being like skydiving. <laughs> and then instead of, by the time I got to the third one, instead of thinking out, I just added a parenthetical. Apparently to me, lots of things are like skydiving. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a very vivid yeah. comparison. And it was like all for different reasons. And I've never been skydiving. <laughs> it's not like a thing that I do five times a year. And right. I'm like, you know, skydiving is like a metaphor for my life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's just like, I don't know, this is handy. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I think, and then when I read the audio book, I was like, that really drove it home. Because yeah. there were parts that I would like read out loud, but I didn't do the thing that is recommended. Like, I think maybe because I was working full time and, and writing uh, as an addition to like a full time yeah. TV job. So I didn't take the time to like, when I got my, you know, when, after I wrote my first draft, to like speak the whole book out loud to myself, oh, yeah. which is like, well, I, I know now is like a, um, let me think of how long it takes. It's like a tw 14 hour process, Whoa, or like yeah. the book I think will be like six hours, the audiobook. Mm -hmm. But when I was reading the audiobook, I was just like, God damn, how often do I use the word cocoon? <laughs> like, <laughs> I never say cocoon, but when I'm writing, I'm just like, everything's Everything a cocoon to me, yeah. Just, yeah, every single thing. So I was like really surprised. There were things that like I did not, th that I learned about myself. Yeah. But I was like, wow, brain, this is really a pattern for you. Right. Maybe, maybe get a thesaurus. <laughs> would you find that with having like another full-time job, like when would you carve out time to write? I worked, so a, a lot of this book was written last year. Mm -hmm. I wrote it basically between October, the, or the, the first draft, the bulk of it was done between October 2017 and um, the beginning of September 2018. And so most of that time I was in the writer's room at Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. Mm -hmm. And they that room is usually predominantly as like Wednesday through Sunday are the work weeks because the show airs on Sunday nights. Yeah. And um, they they are probably there now. <laughs> oh, right, yeah. Um, <laughs> they, uh, that's not close to here. Um, <laughs> they, but they're, they're like, you know, so it, it's, so my weekends were Monday, Tuesday, which yeah. um, for living, uh, you know, for going to weddings, that's a terrible schedule. But for for having uninterrupted time where like your friends are all busy uh, and your wife is busy. Right. And, um, it's like, it was great for that. So I would just like hunker down on the couch. My like writing process looks a lot like uh, just, it could, it could, veer into a nap at any point, <laughs> like without any deviation from my physical state. Like oh, I wow. write, like we have, instead of, we don't have a couch, we have like two love seats. Yeah. And so it's like just, so I sit like this oh, and I wow. prop my computer on my belly and I just write lying down. 
Uh, like, I try to get as close to horizontal that's as like possible. That's like the opposite of a standing desk. It is the opposite of a standing desk. That's absolutely, yeah. that's what I try. Like, when yeah. I see people at standing desks, I'm like, that's so antithetical to my whole process. Yeah, yeah. Which is to try to make myself level. Like, you could put, like, a construction level, what? yeah, across my stomach. <laughs> and that's the ideal condition for me to write. Oh, my gosh. Do you, did you, because you also have a very active social media presence, I would say, in that. I'm you, so sorry. No, no. I mean, you even, you even touched on it in your book and yeah. that you give like pep talks yeah. online and you're very engaged so I'm always curious like how do people who are working on a more intensive mm -hmm. concentration requiring project how did you sort of not get sucked into things like the internet and my uh my I think the right way to do it is to like go a place where you don't have wi-fi yeah. and turn off your wi-fi and turn off your phone or put on airplane mode. The way I did it was I just built in way more time than the writing would empirically oh, take. I see. And that way if I was tempted to like dick around on the internet, there were like two hours of dick around time built in. Oh, wow. Which like I knew and then would go over that because <laughs> right. I, of course. Right. Uh, so it wasn't like an ideal time management system. Sure, but sure. But I did hand in my book one day early, what? the first draft. Yeah, so That's thank you. really yep. impressive. So not to brag, but uh, to brag. Um, <laughs> yeah, so one day early, uh, which is like, yeah. I, and I also like am a pretty fast writer Mm -hmm. uh, which I th is not like a compliment. <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? Like, wow, you read your book. Seems like you wrote it really fast. <laughs> but I think I like. I think I'm a. I'm my my wife when she writes is a deliberator and like yeah. deliberates on sentences, and I am like, let's barf it out and fix it after because it's easier to like fix 800 words to 800, go, you know, to turn that into 600 good words than it is to go from zero to 600. Yeah, did you let anyone else besides your editor read it as you were writing it? Um, I don't, I, no, I don't think so. Yeah. And it was really hard. That's, I mean, as stand-ups and as, as TV writers, right. like, you're, especially in stand-up though, you're used to like, if you have an idea, you can like share it with an audience right. that day. And then if it's good, you're like, great, I can build from here. Yeah. And if it's bad, you're like, mm-hmm, duly noted yeah. again. <laughs> and, and so I like, I, I grew up, I've grown up creatively with that kind of feedback. Right. And, and not having it, I went uh, slightly, like got slightly in my head about it. Yeah, did you feel, because you were still doing stand-up throughout mm -hmm. the writing process, did you feel like stand-up was almost a nice break from that? Yeah. Yeah. I always, because I've never had a situation where I was like, exclusively doing stand-up for a living, like there were no stretches longer than like eight weeks. You yeah. know, and it was yeah. like between seasons of TV writing jobs. I've never, I've always gotten to like enjoy stand-up as, oh, I take the gigs I wanna take. Right. Or I'll take something that's like maybe a little unpleasant because it, it's a chance to stretch my legs and, and learn a little bit about audiences and about myself. But I've never, I've always gotten to treat it as like the, as like a, a little bit of like extra income and a create a, primarily a like creatively fulfilling enterprise, mm -hmm. um, which is why I'm not more successful at it. But um, <laughs> but it is true. it is like a nice release, and it also kind of put a stop because I could I could go okay I have to leave for this show at seven, so I have to be done at seven oh, with with it. like my this tying up the loose ends on the story or hitting my word count for the day like if I set that for myself. So it was a nice stopping point and I would be like, oh, I get to go out and do stand-up at the end of this and I have to finish my writing before then. Yeah. 
Do you feel at all like you're, because the book is sort of about your evolution as a nice guy. Yeah. Um, do you feel like you've kind of evolved your idea of what it means to be nice, which I think is kind of what the intro to the whole book mm -hmm. is about more recently, or is, has it been something that's sort of accumulated over the course of your life? It's been, it's been both. Yeah. The, the last few years have been really formative. Yeah. Um, I think like the current political climate yeah. has, because being nice, I think I've kind of, that's been like a more gradual, like what is being nice as an adult? It's like not that dissimilar from being nice as like a kid. Right. And then I'm trying, so the, the last several years have been more of a project of figuring out how, when being nice intersects with like being good and when it doesn't. Yeah. And that is a more like adult project. And I think there's a lot of kind of polite, you know, there's a lot of like polite bigotry that goes on, right? And a lot of, um, you know, well-mannered, well oh yeah, like uh, horror. There were a lot of genteel races. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And so I think that there's that knowing how to like confront things that are bad. Th this is like such a um, basic way to put it, but like the kind of picking your spots to. To stop being nice. I mean, like I quote from it extensively at the beginning, but like the there's this conversation in the movie Roadhouse where oh, right. yeah, Patrick Swayze, great. who uh, he plays Dalton, but he's Patrick Swayze, uh, and he's uh, he's very small. Uh, that's not a camera trick. He's just he's not like <laughs> he's very <laughs> he's like, small, like a five six. Yeah. Uh, and he says he's like this head bouncer at this real terrible bar in Kansas City. This is what you guys came for, right? Um, <laughs> And he says, uh, he's like advising the other bouncers who would just beat the crap out of people. Uh, that was their technique. And so Patrick Swayze says, I want you to be nice. And they said, well, uh, what happens if someone calls me a name? He's like, well, then you be nice. And he says, well, what happens if that he's big and he won't leave? And he's like, well, you walk him and you bring someone else to walk him, but you be nice. And it's just, and it gets to the point of how do you know when it's time to, be to not be nice? And he right. says, I'll tell you. Uh, which is very handy to have someone to be like, get him. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, you don't have that in life, and it's all. Right. And I think like figuring out like when to be nice and when to not be nice is like a very because you can't yeah. just go always to not nice. Right. When you're like, you know, it's like I said three Splenda. It's like the yeah, wrong yeah, time. Yeah, 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 yeah. I feel like New York is very good at giving you examples of people who are oh, not, yeah. not nice very quickly. Yeah, they'll just take it. They're like, there are so many people in this city that just feel like they're ready to activate as Jason Bourne yeah. at any time. Yeah, yeah. Where it's just like, well, here's the day my karate skills come right. into play. <laughs> or like, they, they wake up already wrong. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just like, eight o'clock. Yeah. Oh. yeah. They're like, I got some feuds to yeah. settle. <laughs> and I don't know with whom yet, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> they'll tell me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, speaking of which, there's an essay about how um, your Spanish teacher yeah. didn't like you in middle school, I believe. In high school, 10th oh, grade. Oh, in high yeah, school. Yeah, my 10th grade and, Spanish uh, teacher. <laughs> I'm not holding on to anything. No, no, no. <laughs> um, but sort of your resolution to that, did, would you say you've had any of those in adulthood where it's like a person, you're just like, I don't know why they don't like me. They just don't. Because I feel like everyone runs into that in adulthood. Yeah. And how do you end up handling it? I... I'm trying to think of the last times. And I especially feel like in comedy, there are people who are just not going to like you because yeah. they decided something about mm -hmm. you is wrong. For sure. Yeah. I, th I think 
being increasingly comfortable with myself and like who mm -hmm. I am as a person has been really helpful to like letting go of that a little bit. But also the the paradox of that is it makes you it makes other people like you more too. Right. So like it's the project of being like, oh, it's okay if they don't like me. And then sometimes people like feel that coming off you and like, yeah. I like that guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tricked you. <ya. laughs> yeah. I was I was well adjusted enough that I fooled you. Yeah, yeah. Do you feel like that there is any extension of that online? Like, have you had to deal yeah, with trolls at all? For sure. And do you engage? Like, what's your I, general? I I try. My rule that I set for myself mm -hmm. is that I don't argue with anyone, and, and I break this rule often. <laughs> uh, but I, I'm pretty good usually when I remember it. Like, I, I don't like think about it and violate it. Yeah. But when I sometimes I just forget it. But my rule that I make for myself is I don't argue politics with anyone using a fake name and a fake picture ah. because they just have no, nothing invested. Right. That's like That's my. Smart. Yeah, That's they could good, do yeah. it. They're just ready to burn it down. Right. Right. So they'll just you're you know you're all, you say something and they're like uh, cite your sources and you're like oh it's from this article and like okay Hitler you know okay there's no yeah, like there's no right. reason for them not to do that because you yeah. don't know who they are they probably don't know who they are you know to get real deep <laughs> oh um, wow yeah Woo. yeah yeah that's what you came for Ninety um, <laughs> Second Street Y <laughs> philosophy bombs um, and and but sometimes I do sometimes I argue with people online and I think occasionally. You can bring someone. I, I try to. The, the problem is the. Like I had a tweet, a few weeks ago, which is how no good stories start. I know. Um, I'm like, oh boy. But I tweeted about when when um, David Koch died. Yeah. Of the of the Koch brothers, and I tweeted something like, uh, again, the, the, a great turn for a story to take is reciting a tweet. But he did something <laughs> like. Um, David Koch has passed away in lieu of flowers. Uh, please construct a uh, system of shell companies through which you can donate enough money to manipulate the levers of political power uh, and, and deregulate the environment for generations. And, and people, mostly people were like, good one, because yeah. it was. Yeah. It, it was, was a good one. Go. Sometimes I know when I get it right. Yeah. And, uh, and but uh, there were other people who, there were like because of the the amount of people that saw that tweet because a bunch of people retweeted it. Right. That after after like arguing with the fifth person, I don't have time to be patient. But like right. the first person, I go. So, you know, people go, a man just died, and I go, well, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. why we're talking about yeah. him. <laughs> like, You're like that was the setup. Yeah. Right, that's <laughs> <laughs> You know, the joke doesn't work without the guy dying. Yeah. If he hadn't died, people would be like, David Koch hasn't just passed yeah, away. Yeah. False premise, that's what they would tweet. Yeah. That's so funny. Oh, but that's it. And, the, you know, I could have a conversation with people. There were a couple of people that would be like, well, this person died. And I'd be like, well, I don't, I don't think that when someone dies, the... Um, the things that they did when they were alive were all of a sudden forgiven. And they'd go, yeah. well, what, well his, he has a family. And i go, yeah, some of them suck real bad too. And <laughs> they'd be like, well, you know, people are like, he has children and a brother. And I was like, you know who his brother is, right? Like, not all brothers are created equal. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he, so people would say that. And, and I eventually just got shorter with people and shorter with people yeah. through the repetition where people were like, a man died. And I'd be like, well, good. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> 
Like, yeah. The right, they got it right this time. Right, <laughs> like, right. I know. Um, yeah. People would go, the, uh, he has a family. I go, are you going to show him the tweet? Because I'm not. <laughs> right. So unless you're going to go show it to them, fucking keep yeah. my name out of your mouth. Yeah, yeah. It's really... It's, yeah, I... That feels like the problem with online. Like you can, you just end up going in circles. Yeah, yeah. You have the same. Like by the time you've had the same conversation, and like maybe some people want to have it civilly, and maybe yeah. some people don't. But by the time you have it the twentieth time, right. Like you just want to cut to the part where you figure out who they are, or yeah. you just tell them the thing that makes them stop talking to you. Yeah. But I, I do a lot of like muting and blocking, like people who like come out the gates abusive I'm just like you're you're sure. done there's no reason to talk to you and like again I think to circle back to a theme from earlier in this hour uh, I get it less than like I get the just straight up abuse as just like white dude um, I get it less than you straight you know straight white cisgendered dude I get it a lot less than a lot of other people mm -hmm. so I do feel like uh, I can't my advice of like yeah you can do it this way like doesn't work for everybody but yeah. like I do try to engage in good faith when I think people are want to have a discussion in good faith unless they are uh, anonymous in face and name in which case I'm like I don't I don't care how genuinely you want to argue with me and how much your heart disagrees with me uh, I just you have nothing you have no skin in the game so right right do you ever kind of the flip side of that question I mm -hmm. know you are a source of positivity online in that you offer people pep talks. Have you ever gotten ones where you're not sure how to best handle it? Or? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Occasionally you get people that are in like tough situations or like you, you do that. That's, I think I, I think it's just me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but occasionally I'll, someone will respond and they'll have a problem that I'm like, oh, I don't know how to encourage someone to yeah. behave in this situation. Or I'll look at their timeline because I try to be specific. Uh, so this is the thing. I will say on Twitter if people if people don't know who I am, which is most the most people, um, I will say, hey, usually at night if I'm on the road, I'll say, hey, if anybody needs to hear a kind word, I'm here for five minutes giving pep talks. Just let me know, and then I'll respond to people. And often, people will say like, I have a big job interview tomorrow, something like that, yeah. like a, a concrete thing. And you know, I don't have any advice, but I can say. Um, well, look, you're going to a new job interview. They want to meet you. Yeah. So just be be you. Just be the most you. Uh, like, unless your resume is filled with outright fabrications. <laughs> right, right. Just be the person they think they're going to meet. And, and and be, like, a you know, a kind and generous and, like, affable version of that person. Yeah. The kind that you would want to sit in an office with for eight hours a day. Right. And, like, that's, you know, that's, like, it's not, uh, like, career counseling. Yes. But it is enough that someone who's nervous might go, oh, yeah. Like, right. I, they did ask me to come in for this interview. Yeah, yeah. I'm not kicking in the door like, ask me questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I want this. So, um, but sometimes, yeah, it'll be someone who's like general vibe I'm not clear on or their yeah. specific problem. And I think I'll like, I have a, you know, I just kind of lean on platitudes that I think are generally true, which is like, things can be better than they are now. Right. Uh, or like, it doesn't, you know, if you feel bad now, it doesn't, it doesn't always have to feel this way. And like, you can be helpful to other people. There are people who want to be helpful to you. Like things like that yeah. are like sometimes things that are helpful to hear, even if you know the project a person is embarking upon is like not super worthwhile. I did. <laughs> you ever? Do you mean you're like secretly judge their? Yeah. I mean, no. 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 Not like. Not like. Yeah, dude, you're gonna work at an insurance agency. 
your header picture is a guitar. Play the guitar, man. Um, I, I did do a, I did a podcast pilot and they Whoa. wanted to do pep talks. I know, not to brag again, <laughs> no. but they wanted me to do pep talks on the podcast yeah. and they, they didn't show them to me beforehand, I don't think, because they wanted it to be oh, like- Oh, they wrote them. They, or oh. they solicited them, oh. the people producing the podcast. Got it. And I think what I learned from that experience was like, because they wanted like kind of a moment of surprise and and like working through something and thinking on your feet, but like it didn't, some of it didn't, some of it was really cool, it was like, oh, I'm talking through it with my guest and yeah. when we're figuring out a way to be encouraging. And then one time on this like, you know, this practice podcast we were doing, the the problem they solicited was like too real and I think the person who was asking for the pep talk was like fairly clearly in the wrong. So yeah. my friend and my friend and I were like really struggling with what to say to them about it because oh, it's wow. like, you know, it was something where um they had clear they were they were expecting unreasonable things from other people. Yeah. And and it wasn't an advice thing, you know, it wasn't like um like an ask Polly where they were like, "What should I do?" and you can yeah. be like, well, idiot. <laughs> that, that's not what Heather Heverlovsky would ever write. She would never start a response, well, idiot. But you can, you know, you can apply a little tough love when yeah. people are looking for advice. That's like part of what advice is. Right. But when people are like, hey, tell me it's gonna be okay, or like tell me that that this thing isn't isn't unreasonable of me, you can't always say it. Yeah. But I usually don't get on Twitter people being like, Man, uh, I just choked this dog unconscious, and I'm feeling real <laughs> weird about it. So yeah. it's you know it's usually people that are like nervous about. I, part of it is yeah. like my self-selecting group of followers. It's usually something like you know I just had this bad breakup, and I I feel really down, and it, I don't know that I'll ever meet someone again. And it's yeah. like that's an easy because like the platitudes in those cases are true, right? The conventional wisdom of like it doesn't always have to feel like this. There are other people. You you are you are worthy of love yeah. are like easy and true things to say that maybe not, maybe people aren't always hearing all the time. Yeah. Um, I think I have one more question sure. and then we can open it up to the audience. Uh, were there any essays that you ended up not including? Yeah, there were a few. There was one that I, uh, fortunately, because it's a story that I really like to tell. It's a story about, uh, I ended up telling it on the, um, Something, gosh, I wish I could remember what it's called. It was the Y2K podcast by the guy who did um, Finding Richard Simmons. Yeah. Dan. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and he, there was like an, a bonus episode that's just the story. And it's a story about how my childhood friends and I, our Y2K was we waited for this old, like, 1990s computer to crash. We, like, thought it was going to crash when midnight struck, and it didn't, so we threw it off a bridge. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but because of my disposition, I was like, wait, we can't, um, we can't just, that's littering, guys. <laughs> that's I definitely said that's littering, guys. I was like, but if we all write a message on the computer, it's not littering, it's a time capsule. Huh? So that's what we did. We all wrote in Sharpie oh on the body goodness. of this computer that probably weighed like 25 pounds. And then we, we carried it in like alternating teams of two with our scrawny 14-year-old arms. And we carried it to a bridge and we oh pushed it off. God. And then... Uh, it's not called getting pulled over when you're walking and the cop is in a car, <laughs> but whatever that's called, we got that. And it Before was like Before you a, threw it? Uh, after. Oh, oh, so okay. the guy was like, where were you coming from? And, and he was like, might not have been a cop. This, <laughs> guy, this guy might have been like, tonight's my first night as Batman. <laughs> and, <laughs> 
He was like plain clothes? Plain clothes. Okay. Yeah. We were like, oh, he must be undercover because we were children. Right. <laughs> he was like, kids, I'm a cop. And we're like, sure. Yeah. Yeah. You, okay. You've got a wallet. <laughs> like, <laughs> That was all. He's going deep on the bridge. Deep undercover. Deep, deep. Yeah. And he was like, where were you? And my friend Matt goes, we, and we, the bridge was next to a cemetery, but we didn't go into the cemetery. You don't okay. have to go into the cemetery yeah. to be on the bridge. Um, and my friend Matt goes, uh, we were in the cemetery. And we're like, what? And he was like, he was like, well, if there's any problems in that cemetery, or then he asked, he was like, what's your name? And my friend Matt gave not just his name, but like his address. <laughs> Just that's how, that's just how much authority cowed us as a group. Not all of us, there were a couple couple of renegades, but uh, my friend Matt, he was just like, gave his first and last name, address, and and then as we were walking away, we were like, why did you tell him we're in the cemetery? You could have said anything, it's just that we're out for a walk. And he goes, no guys, it's okay, because we weren't really in the cemetery. (laughs) It's like, so now we can just get blamed for the things we did and the things that we didn't do. And so there was like there was a story about that. I just like like the idea of like I think it's illustrative of my childhood personality of like I wanted to get right up to the edge of like doing something fun and like snotty, but I was like we have to make it a time capsule. Right, <laughs> like right. that's good. Like Your Honor, it was a time capsule. <laughs> like that's ever held up in the court of law. <laughs> so that got cut, and there were a couple other things that got cut here and there. I had this like weird trip to. Hong Kong where I had to pretend I was a documentary filmmaker. Whoa. Yeah, and it just like is such a weird story and th- that it just like didn't quite fit. Yeah. Um, and maybe maybe I'll find a way to tell it somewhere else sometime, but it was like uh, I just basically I basically went and pre- represented this film as if I had made it and it was huh. basically an ad for a travel agency. What? And yeah, it was but it was submitted as a documentary, so I had to go before the jurors of yeah. the jury on the, of this film festival committee, and they were like, "This is a commercial for a travel agency." Whoa. And I was like, "Our film is so much more than that." <laughs> <laughs> and, and because it was the only, because it was the only uh, film submitted in the do- film submitted in the documentary category, they had to give it a prize, but they gave it the silver medal. <laughs> so silver medal. I came in second in a field of one. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, man. So should we turn it over to the, yeah, we turn over to the, up to yeah. the audience? Do you, do you all have any questions? you just want to raise your hand and we'll be called on. So where did you grow up and how did you become so nice? Where did I grow up and how did I become so nice? Um, great question. I grew up just outside of Boston, a famously kind city. And <laughs> <laughs> I have very lovely parents and grew up in a very gentle, um, a very gentle home life. And I think part of it is just like my brain chemistry tends towards that. And I'm also, uh, I'm a weakling and bad at being mean. So like you kind of grow towards what works for you. <laughs> I think like it wouldn't take that many street fights for me to be like, maybe I should be the nice guy. <laughs> Great question. Others? Here? Yeah, what's up? Mm-hmm. You're obviously dealing with a ton of terrible, hideous, horrible material all the time. Mm-hmm. My jokes. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Sorry. No, like, but, uh, you know, as somebody who has sort of a gentle temperament and yeah. wants to be nice, and what was, how did you mentally handle having to take in all of that negative 
media negative politics sure. um, and translate it in a, in a funny way. I know that for me as a media critic, it's incredibly difficult to compartmentalize sometimes, but you learn to. Um, but I've never done the kind of every single day uh, taking in that you would have had to do that. That's a really good question. So for people that didn't hear, it, it, to summarize, when working last week tonight, I had to deal with a lot of like dark news, right? Like depressing news. And how did I handle like, as like a person with a very gentle disposition handle, like taking, ingesting that and like having to like kind of push it back out as comedy, right? Is that the question? So I think, um, and that's a great question. I think a lot of it was, it was very satisfying as a job to find a way to do that, like to get to, try to make something, like, to bring a little humor and solace and, like, uh, you know, kind of, uh, like, John, I think, really wanted to get the stories right in addition to having great jokes. So it felt good to work on that project, to, like, make the news feel funny and intelligible to people who were, like, kind of despairing over it. So that was that was the big, uh, the big silver lining. And the other part is uh, it was very hard and was depressing. So like that's, I felt bad was the other way that I dealt with it, was like feeling it and not feeling good. Um, great question. Oh, did you, you had one, right? Yeah, what's up, Micah? Big fan. <laughs> uh, most of the work that I've known from you has been um, nonfiction. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you have um, any plans for fiction on the horizon. Yeah, I, uh, I do, I think. I'm, I, well, I've told so many of the things that happened in my life. So I either get to start living real weird <laughs> <laughs> or like start to think about different, a different medium. So like my, my agent uh, and I have been talking about maybe trying to come up with some kind of novel idea and also uh, thinking about like creating a TV show at some point that is fiction. Cause it is like, uh, I do love working in reality because I'm, I'm not like, I don't think my strength as a writer lies in imagination, uh, which is like, what a sad thing to say. <laughs> That's like one of the elves on the North Pole being like, I'm not really great with toys. Um, but it, I think it's like a muscle that I, I'm like excited to try and uh, strengthen and cultivate. Cause it is like, that is, then you can do anything once you can just make it up. Any other, any other questions? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so when John Oliver goes off on a wild mm -hmm. rant, mm -hmm. is that all John Oliver or has any of that been written? That's all, that's all scripted. Yeah, he, oh, sorry. I'm, but I'm sorry, I just articulated maybe a little more clearly. Does he have any input in that or is that really all from you writing? Oh, that's a great question. So when John has you know, a long monologue or like a riff on something on the show, it is, John is like incredibly hands-on and careful about what is in the script and what he says on television. But it is a, a lot of it is generated by the writers and then kind of kicked back and forth. Like the, the writers will get notes and rewrite and then he'll, there's like a two and a half hour rewrite between rehearsal and the show just to like make it sound exactly like the way he wants to say it and the way it like the jokes will hit the hardest and the way it, it just sounds natural. So it is like a real, it is like a super collaborative process and John is like incredibly, he's like the driving force and like nothing, you know, there's nothing that goes in the air that he doesn't want to say because you can't, it's, you can't like open up the, you know, <laughs> and just trick him into doing it. So it's all what he, what he feels comfortable and, and 
uh, enthusiastic to say, but like a lot of it comes comes from the writing staff. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. So I now write for Jesus and Mero on Showtime, and a lot of what they do is like incredibly improvisational, and the, it is. It's a lot of improv, and so a lot of the writing is like writing the sketches or like um, writing beats for the stuff they do out in the field, like constructing those scenarios and writing the copy that leads them into stories. It, it's like a very interesting challenge to have to write super clean copy that because they will sometimes go in not knowing what the stories are and they'll just read it in the prompter and they'll see the footage and then just start reacting that's like how they're like incredibly improvisational it's not a put on so um we have to write copy that tells the host of the show what the show is about <laughs> while they're recording the show <laughs> and so it's like a very different it's a very different thing, and they're like so incredibly funny and, and dynamic off the cuff that like we have to kind of try to get, have that stuff come out in one shot so that they're just like off and running. And so it's like a very different challenge. Where with John, it's like how do we get the words exactly right in the teleprompter so that he's reading, and he reads it a thousand miles an hour, like he's incredible. He'll do uh, some weeks the like 30 minute show, you know, not 30 minutes of text because there's video and, uh, and uh, breathing. Um, but he'll do it without without a second take on anything sometimes, and he's just like nails it. Um, so it is like a fully opposite writing experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you remember any of the messages that were written on the computer? Do I remember any of the messages that were written on the computer? That's a really good question. Yeah, I think we, I think we all used uh, slightly veiled aliases. <laughs> Uh, but, so here's the thing, they were not, uh, like normally when you have an alias, it's, it is supposed to, so people don't know your real name. But ours were all just like, mostly like nicknames based on our real names. <laughs> so it would have been incredibly easy to trace back to us. Like I remember specifically, I remember I signed mine uh, because the, at the time, um, Bill Goldberg uh, was a semi-popular professional wrestler. And he was like, it was like, he was an, a big Jewish guy that was a professional wrestler, which you didn't see a lot of. And so my friends at the time, as like, I actually would call me Gondelberg. And so that's how I signed it, which is like, come on. <laughs> that's not an alias. That's like if Al Capone went by Al Cap 2. <laughs> Can I read an excerpt from the book? Yeah. Sure. Can I yes, steal your please. copy? Um, let me see. Oh, shoot. Are there not page numbers in it? I'm sorry. No, that's okay. Uh, I should have brought one, too. I know what chapter I want to read, but I don't have a... Oh, thank you. There you go. Thanks, Celeste. Um, now I have to remember what the chapter is called. Uh, sorry. Uh, nope, it's before that. Oh, Okay. 145. Okay. Um, on New Year's Eve 2014, I like, I didn't even pretend to protest. <laughs> no, no, I couldn't. Okay, let's do it. I was just like, bring it on. Give me a second book. Yeah, yeah. Second book. <laughs> Sorry to make you sit here no. while I do this. Um, <laughs> the, oh, this chapter is called Sorry Not Sorry. Um, 
On New Year's Eve 2014, a little more than three years after moving to New York, I made a single unambiguous resolution. I decided to stop apologizing when people bumped into me. It sounds like a simple rule to follow, but it proved deceptively hard to abide by. I'm an apologetic person by nature. I apologize to inanimate objects I collide with. I apologize for taking up people's time in emails they have specifically asked me to send them. <laughs> I apologize to my dog for not being able to give her more treats no matter how insistently she sneezes in my face. <laughs> I'm not especially religious, but my favorite part of Judaism is the time between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur when you're expected to make amends for any slights you've committed over the previous year. A week of scheduled, regimented apology. My dream. <laughs> I used to fulfill this obligation with a mass email to friends and family members expressing contrition and asking forgiveness. One time I accidentally sent it without BCCing the recipients so everyone could see who was on the list. I sent a follow-up email apologizing for that. <laughs> The change came slowly, but it did come. A few months after my no apologies declaration, I was transferring subway lines at the Times Square station, which is a little like squeezing through the bar at the Star Wars cantina, but with worse music, and you're directly underneath a Bubba Gump shrimp company. <laughs> I joined the human college, spilling out of the downtown A train. As I slipped onto the platform, another passenger bumped into me shoulder to shoulder as he squeezed onto the train. Not hard, but hard enough. Now, if you do not live in a place with abundant public transportation, here's the problem with that. The rule is, you let everybody off the train, and then you get on the train. There are no exceptions to this rule. I realize we live in a highly individualized society where we're alienated from communities and encouraged to look out primarily for ourselves. But without accepted norms, we do not have a society at all. We are living in anarchy. <laughs> If you push through the torrent of disembarking passengers to get aboard a subway train 15 seconds sooner, you are a true sociopath. You're the kind of person who would drive on the left side of the highway because there's less traffic going that way, or who would wear another person's actual human face as a Halloween costume. So one of those kinds of people jostled me as he psychopathed his way onto the train, probably on his way to dump a barrel of crude oil into a lake just to see the swirling colors. My body contorted from the glancing contact. I swiveled my head to face the reckless commuter. Sorry, I called after him. But the thing is, I wasn't sorry. In fact, it was he who should have apologized to me. Something inside me broke, like a dog's leash snapping in two, allowing for unfettered pursuit of a mail carrier or a squirrel or some other formidable dog nemesis. Hey, I shouted into the train as the bing bong chime sounded and the doors began to close. I'm not actually sorry. <laughs> Adrenaline flooded my body. I felt powerful, limitless, a subway etiquette vigilante standing up for himself and for all New Yorkers. <laughs> Thank you. Oh. A, a question there? Yes. Oh, great question. So for everyone here who also is going to be in Boston at Thanksgiving, um, <laughs> I think I'll probably do a couple spots at the Comedy Studio in Somerville. Mm -hmm. I'll let you know. Yeah, Yay. I know. The new room is nice. Have you been? Not yet. OK. <laughs> That's my gut. <laughs> he might have been, but he wasn't. <laughs> Um, great. How are we yeah, on time? Are I we think are we, we, are, good? we just hit 8 o'clock, so oh, wow. I guess we should wrap up. Cool. But um, Josh is a delightful man. Thank you. Man, a and, uh, and thank you guys so much for coming out. Uh, thank you. Oh, my gosh. What a time. Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. 
You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92yondemand.org.